All right. Uh, This time we're going to talk about two important early Renaissance poets, Sir Thomas Wyatt and Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey. Uh, but before we get to them, I want to talk uh, about the history of the sonnet and about the nature of the sonnet form itself. Uh, there's a handout that uh, gives kind of an outline of this, so you can follow along with that as uh, I'm giving my talk. Now, the inventor of the sonnet was Giacomo Dallantini. He was a Sicilian poet in the court of uh, the Emperor Frederick II, uh, and he was a he came from the troubadour tradition. And the sonnet—he was just the first one to ever use the sonnet. Uh, he's not the most famous person to use it. You've probably never heard of him. Uh, so I want to pick up the history of the sonnet a generation later with Dante. Now, Dante is most famous for the Divine Comedy, the the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso, where he traces the soul's journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven. Uh, But before he wrote that, he wrote a work called La Vita Nuova, The New Life. And this was a uh, a kind of a mixed genre piece. He wrote sonnets in there along with prose commentary. Uh, and this was written in Italian, which was unusual. Most uh, literature was written in Latin at that time. So it was written in the in the native language. And he really, in, in La Vita Nuova, you can see the germ of the sonnet sequence as it would develop. So for Dante... The Levita Nuova was about his relationship with Beatrice, who was this beautiful woman that he uh, had been in love with since he since they were nine years old, and was his his muse and his inspiration. Uh, in the Divine Comedy, Beatrice is the the one who guides him through heaven, and as that would suggest, uh, Beatrice was dead. So his love for Beatrice becomes a way of him to, for him to focus on higher spiritual things. Uh, loving Beatrice is a way of him learning how to love God. So from the very early on, you see that the the, the sonnet was mixing uh, romantic and theological themes, and certainly La Vita Nuova does that. Now, a generation after Dante came Petrarch, and he's really the central figure in the in the sonnet and how it was used in in Europe throughout for the next several centuries. He wrote a work called Rima Sparza, that is the Scattered Rhymes, and this was the first real sonnet sequence. Uh, it wasn't all sonnets; there were some songs written in other forms uh, interspersed in there, but it was mainly sonnets, and they were addressed to his beloved Laura. And about halfway through his sonnet sequence, Laura dies. So like Dante with Beatrice, he is is mourning her, but Petrarch is a much more secular uh, spin on this than, than Dante had. Uh, so he, And he really set the the standards that all of the the subsequent sonneteers would use, uh, they're called you know the Petrarchan conventions that he set up, and these were copied in almost all of the sonnets and sonnet sequences that came later. Uh, first of all, he established a particular kind of dramatic situation. 
So the the speaker of the poems uh, is introspective. He is psychological. He is you know interested in his own psychology, looking inward. It's also autobiographical. It's understood that the speaker and the poet or the same person. Now, obviously, any time you have a, a speaker in a work of literature, it's in some sense a character created by the author. It's not just strictly the author. But the fiction was that the, the speaker was the author himself. And the the sonnet sequence follows the conventions of courtly love. This was a medieval tradition. And in courtly love, you had an unrequited love for an unattainable, unobtainable beloved. The, the paradigm of this is Lancelot and Guinevere, though, of course, they went beyond courtly love to actual physical love, and that caused the destruction of King Arthur's court. But in its ideal, the courtly love was a, a, a man who was deeply in love with a woman who was unobtainable, usually because she was married or in love with someone else. So it's this, you know, yearning for something that you can never have. And that's very much the relationship that Petrarch created with Laura. Uh, he's deeply in love with her. She doesn't feel quite the same way about him. It also established that there's no resolution to this. It, it, there's no, uh, they don't come together and marry and live happily ever after at the end of the sonnet sequence, nor do they make a, a definite break. Uh, it, it's kind of held in suspension. Uh, and that, that gets us to the idea of how the, the sonnets were arranged and organized within a sequence. It was not a, a chronological narrative. They're not telling a story within, in, you know, in Sonnet, in little sonnets instead of telling in chapters. Uh, instead, each sonnet was one specific psychological moment in the, in the relationship. Uh, so you might have a sonnet where the sonneteer is very happy one moment, and the, the, you know two sonnets later he's in the deepest depression. Uh, another sonnet he's not even talking about his beloved; he's talking about something else. Um, so it, it, there's almost this kind of roller coaster effect. You know, you go, you go, there are big ups and downs, and you never know what's going to happen from one moment to the next. But it's not; it's not trying to tell a specific. You know, a, a coherent linear story. It's trying to give you a series of little snapshots of the psychology of the the speaker in this this uh, painful love relationship that he's in. And as as Petrarch did, the later sonnet sequences often would include things besides sonnets. There would be songs, and we'll see that when we get to uh, Sir Philip Sidney's sonnet sequence. He, there are a couple, we'll read a couple of the songs that he included in his sequence. Now, another thing that Petrarch did for the, the sonnet was set a series of what are called Petrarchan conceits. A conceit is, is an idea, it's a metaphor, it's a way of thinking about something. And the Petrarchan conceits uh, became, uh, before too long, became the cliches of love poetry. But for Petrarch, they were fresh and new. They were things that he invented. Uh, a lot of them are, are analogies for love. So imagining love as a war or, or a battle, uh, or love is a deadly disease or a, a fatal wound that you're suffering from. Love is a kind of torment or torture that you're enduring. 
You know, love is, is bondage or slavery. Love is like hunt, the hunt, uh, you know, hunting an animal. You're hunting after an animal, and you could be both the hunter and the hunted in the love relationship. Uh, love is like a ship that's on stormy seas that can't find a port. Uh, all of those were images that Petrarch used and that the later sonneteers throughout Europe would, would borrow and expand on. There are also a series of conceits about the beloved. Uh, the, the beloved is the, the ruler, the master, the, 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 the lord, uh, the queen. Uh, she's the one in control. Uh, also, frequently he talks about the power of the beloved's gaze with just a look. She doesn't say anything, but just a look, she can pierce his heart. Uh, it often f- focuses on the physical beauty of the beloved, and this led to uh, what's called a, a blazon. Uh, a blazon is a catalog of the features of the beloved. Uh, again, these have become cliches. Your hair is as, ye- is as yellow as gold. Uh, your eyes are like stars, that kind of thing. Another kind of game uh, that uh, Petrarch would play is making puns on the beloved's name, you know, kind of being playful with language, even with her name. And Laura uh, is a, a close, especially in Italian, is very close to the word laurel and the, the idea of laud, of praise. Uh, and so those, laurel was the, the symbol of the poet. So all of those kind of puns came in, and we'll see other sonneteers will play on their beloved's names. Um, one of the things that the, the sonneteer is promising to do is to immortalize his beloved in verse. You will live on forever in my rhyme. Uh, and, and centrally, the kind of the psychology that the Petrarchan conceits get at is the simultaneous pain and pleasure of lovesickness. Uh, sonnets are very much about being not just being in love, but being lovesick. And so the, the two figures of speech that occur most frequently are oxymoron and paradox. Now, an oxymoron is, you know, is basically kind of two words that contradict each other. People often joke that military intelligence is an oxymoron. Um, a paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement that actually makes sense if you if you think about it a while. So you have to spend money to make money is a, a very cliche paradox. Uh, but since it's talking about, the, the, the sonnets are talking about simultaneous pleasure and pain, oxymoron and paradox show up a lot. On your handout, I've given you a, a short section from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet where you can see the influence of these Petrarchan conceits. Uh, Shakespeare is actually, I think, making fun of them here. There's such a concentration of these uh, oxymorons and paradoxes. Uh, Romeo says, Why then, O brawling love, O loving hate, O anything of nothing first create? heavy lightness, serious vanity, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms, feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health, still waking sleep that is not what it is. This love I feel that feel no love in this. Uh, so that's that's classically Petrarchan language, and we'll see how different poets kind of adopt and play off those, uh, those conceits uh, in, in the sonnet tradition. 
Now, the sonnet was extremely popular throughout Europe. There were other Italian sonneteers, there were you know French and uh, and, uh, and other countries. Uh, but the introduction of the sonnet to England happened during the reign of King Henry VIII, and it was uh, Thomas Wyatt. It was Wyatt and Surrey who really brought the sonnet into English poetry, and mainly initially through translation of Petrarch. Uh, so uh, Wyatt is one of the first to translate some of Petrarch's sonnets into English. Uh, and now neither of these men wrote their own sonnet sequence that would come later but they began they introduced the sonnet into English and introduced Petrarch uh, through translation uh, now Surrey is significant not just for his translations of, of Petrarch but also because he invented the English sonnet rhyme scheme and we'll be talking more about what that means in a moment but that's the rhyme scheme that Shakespeare would use for all of his sonnets rather than the Italian or Petrarchan rhyme scheme that uh, Petrarch and most of the continental uh, sonneteers had used uh, Another key sonneteer in English is Sir Philip Sidney. We'll be looking at some of his the poems from his sequence Astrophil and Stella. And uh, Stella, the beloved in, in his poems, most people believe was a woman named Penelope Rich, who he was in love with but had married another man, just as he had married another woman. And there are several poems where he's playing on her the name Rich, the same way that uh, Petrarch played on the name Laura. Uh, Spencer was another important sonneteer. He wrote a, a very unusual uh, sonnet sequence called The Amoretti, the, the Little Loves, and it was dedicated to his wife, Elizabeth Boyle, and that's very unusual. Usually the the sonnet is, is dedicated to an unobtainable woman. That's the courtly love tradition. But Spencer made his uh, about uh, courting and then marrying his fiancée and ends his sonnet sequence with a, a poem called The Epithalamian, which is a celebration of their marriage. Uh, and finally, the, the last you know major uh, sonnet sequence that we'll be looking at in class is William Shakespeare, his Shakespeare sonnets. And, and he had two very unconventional beloveds in his poem. One was a, a fair young man, uh, and the other was a, a dark lady. And we'll be talking more about those characters and how Shakespeare used them to play off the conventions of the sonnet uh, when we get to that. Well, I've been talking about you know the sonnet uh, without really explaining what it is. So let's explain what it is. A sonnet's very simple. It's a 14-line poem written in iambic pentameter following a strict rhyme scheme. So let's break that down. Now, 14 lines is pretty straightforward. You count the lines, there are 14 of them. If there aren't 14 lines, it's not a sonnet. Iambic pentameter, well, what's that? Well, pentameter, uh, penta, means five, meter is the meter or beat, so there are five metrical feet in a line of iambic pentameter. Now, a foot in, in metrical terms means you have one stressed syllable plus one or more unstressed syllables that form a repeating pattern. Uh, they can form different patterns, but the iambic pattern is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Didum. Uh, iambic words like belief, arise, defend, prepare, conceive. Right. So we've got a, a, a 
stress following an unstressed. And you'll notice if you look on the handout that those are marked. The stress is a little, uh, a little uh, mini slash, and the unstressed is a little smiley face. It has no stress. It's just smiling there. Um, so an iambic pentameter line would be five iambic beats. Uh, a couple of examples uh, from Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Now, notice when you're when you're scanning the line. That's when you you know mark the accents and the and the feet in the line. Uh, the they they don't follow the the word boundaries. You can you you notice the last two feet of that line uh, break right in the middle of the word summer. So a sum is the is one foot, and mer's day is the second foot. Uh, also, it's important to remember that it's this is all about relative stress. So you're not saying what is the strongly stressed word in the line. You're just looking at which of these two syllables has slightly more stress. And that makes iambic pentameter a very uh, uh, robust uh, verse form uh, because you can modulate it very carefully. It doesn't, get, it doesn't have to get monotonous and thumping, which is a little bit of difference in stress. You can keep the beat going. Uh, another example from John Milton. When I consider how my light is spent. Now, again, nobody says it that way. You just say, when I consider how my light is spent. And it sounds very natural in, in English because we tend to alternate unstressed and stressed syllables just naturally in English. So those are the stand, that's the standard iambic pentameter line. There are a couple of significant variations of that, though. Oftentimes, a line will end with an unstressed extra syllable. That's called a feminine ending. So, uh, from Shakespeare again, a woman's face with nature's own hand painted. See that painted? You've got that extra syllable. Or from one of Richard Barnfield's sonnets, he straight perceived himself to be my lover. Now, often that unstressed ending gives a, a, a kind of a sense of er, of irresolution. It doesn't have a nice thumping end. Uh, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. It kind of ends on, a, a, on an unresolved note. Now, alternatively, another variation you find a lot in, uh, in iambic verse is to have a strong stressed syllable as the first syllable of the line. That's a good way of getting the, the line or, the, or the, the poem or the stanza off to a good start. So, seeing the game from him escaped away. And after that strong stress, you get what's called an anapestic foot. An anapest, anapest is two unstressed syllables followed by a stressed syllable. So, seeing the game from him escaped away. Or from Dunn's Holy Science, batter my heart, three-person God, for you. That batter, not, it's not batter, it's not seeing, uh, you have a, a extra stress there, you have a stress there at the beginning. And those are just a couple of the common variations that you'll see in the sonnet form. Now, there are three kinds of sonnets that I'd like to talk about. Now, we know it's a 14-line poem. We know it's written in iambic pentameter. Uh, and the thing that tells us really what kind of a sonnet it is, is the rhyme scheme. So the Italian, or Petrarchan, uh, it's sometimes called Petrarchan, even though Petrarch didn't invent the rhyme scheme, um, it, it falls into two parts. There's an octave, 
That's a, a group of eight lines with two rhyming sounds, and we note rhyming sounds just by by letters in the alphabet. So the first two rhymes will be A and B. So just they just have A and B rhymes. Now it may go. Uh, usually in Italian it would go A B B A A B B A, uh, but it could also go, and often in English would go A B A B A B A B. But the point is, you've got eight lines with two rhyme sounds. Then you have often what's called the the turn or the volta. Uh, that is, the, the the poem will will switch or make a rhetorical move at the ninth line, and that moves us into the sestet. Now, that's not a sextet. That's a group of six instruments. But a sestet is a group of six lines. And in a sonnet, it will have two and maybe three new rhyme sounds. So there are a lot of variations of, of this. It might be, you know, CDE, CDE, CD, 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 um, CD, CD, D, C, E, E. Uh, there are a whole lot of variations on this, but the point is that it's new rhyme sounds, uh, two or three new ones. And I give you an example of a of a, a Petrarchan or Italian style sonnet there, uh, and you can see how the rhyme scheme works. You know, will, still, kill, spill, abuse, choose, excuse, refuse. That's the octave. And then the sestet, we have uh, indeed, feed, uh, bound, found, made, fade. Uh, so that's how the, those rhyme sounds work. Now that's the Italian or Petrarchan sonnet. For the English or Shakespearean sonnet, again, Shakespeare didn't invent this. Surrey did. But Shakespeare gets Shakespeare's name because he's the most famous person who used it. Um, one of the reasons that Surrey invented this rhyme scheme is that English is harder to rhyme in than Italian or Romance languages. Italians have all those wonderful vowel endings, which makes it very easy to uh, keep a, you know just one or two rhyme sounds going. It's harder in English. So Surrey invented a three quatrain and a couplet structure. So a quatrain is a group of four lines, and in the sonnet they have alternating rhymes. And then a couplet is just a pair of rhyming lines. So it's A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. And there's not a lot of variation. Unlike the Italian sonnet, there's not a lot of wiggle room. It needs to fit that to be an, an English or Shakespearean sonnet. Now, the final one is the Spencerian sonnet rhyme scheme. Spencer was a really uh, an innovator in verse forms, and he didn't like the conventional rhyme scheme, so he invented one of his own and wrote all of his sonnets in that. And some people have followed uh, later, uh, not a lot of his contemporaries, but in uh, the Romantics, for example, uh, uh, Keats would write Spencerian sonnets. Uh, so this has three quatrains and a couplet, like the English sonnet. But for Spencer, the three quatrains have some interlocking rhymes. So the second rhyme in the first quatrain will be the first rhyme in the, the, the second rhyme in the first quatrain will be the first rhyme in the second quatrain. So it goes A B A B B C B C C D C D E E. It's a much more tightly interwoven uh, rhyme scheme. 
uh, and we'll be talking about how the you know the poets use the the organization and rhyme scheme of the sonnets uh, in the next few sessions as we look at uh, at Sydney and later as we look at uh, Shakespeare. Uh, but let's turn now to looking at the, our first two English sonneteers, Wyatt and Surrey. Let's look first at Wyatt's sonnet, Whoso Lists to Hunt. Now, this is a, a an adaptation of Petrarch's Remo 190. And I want to look at the, the translation of that first, to kind of get that poem that, uh, that uh, Wyatt was borrowing from. Uh, a white doe on the green grass appeared to me with two golden horns between two rivers in the shade of a laurel when the sun was rising in the unripe season. Her look was so sweet and proud that to follow her I left every task, like the miser who, as he seeks treasure, sweetens his troubles with delight. Let no one touch me, she bore written with diamonds and topazes around her lovely neck. It has pleased Caesar to make me free. And the sun had already turned at midday. My eyes were tired by looking, but not sated, when I fell into the water and she disappeared. So this is a moment where he sees this ideal beauty. Again, love is a hunt. Uh, he's hunting the, the, the doe, the, uh, the, the heart, the, the uh, uh, deer. And he is not allowed to touch it. Again, this is the unrequited love. Now, this is not... Uh, Wyatt does not kind of make a very close translation. He just takes that idea and puts his own, uh, uh, his own spin on it. Let's look at Wyatt's poem. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is in hind. But as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore, I am of them that farthest come behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, since in a net I seek to hold the wind. Whoso list her hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. And graven with diamonds in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about. Noli me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Now, one of the things that uh, Wyatt has done here is it's, it's in some ways much more psychological. It's more him talking about himself and his own. Uh, relation to this uh, metaphorical deer. Uh, and he starts off, it's also uh, more rhetorical. He's not just talking to himself, he's talking to other people. Whoso list, all of you who want to hunt, well, I know one that you can hunt. I've kind of given up on that. But then it turns out he really hasn't given up on it. He's just, he's just been unsuccessful. Uh, he says, I can by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer. He can't stop thinking about her. As she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. You know, she plays hard to get, and I just keep keep trying. As I leave off, therefore, since in a net I seek to hold the wind. That's a beautiful image. Again, that's not in Petrarch. That's something that Wyatt has, has made here. 
uh, trying to catch the net in a wind, but also because of the way English syntax works. For a minute, it says, since in a net I, it's almost like he's in a net. He's imprisoned. He's captured. Since in a net, I seek to hold the wind. And notice that it kind of falls, as, as Petrarchan sonnets tend to, into two parts. It begins, whoso list her hunt, and line nine is, whoso list her hunt. Uh, it's kind of signaling that we're, we're circling back. And very often, a Petrarchan sonnet, the sestet will comment on uh, what's happened in the, in the octave. Um, and notice the way he describes the, the message around her neck. It's noli me tangere, and it's touch me not, for Caesar's I am. Um, I belong to Caesar. Um, now, a lot of people have speculated that this is a poem about Anne Boleyn, who was the wife of Henry VIII, but may have been, uh, but, but Wyatt may have been in love with her. Um, so she's for Caesar. He can't touch her. Um, now that, again, is a very interesting twist on the original Petrarchan situation, which seems to be more kind of an idealized love. This is somebody who is kind of in the in in the world and not able to uh, make his desires reconcile. Uh, the Petrarch seems kind of idealistically unattainable, uh, a beloved. Uh, this one seems much more practically. Um, now, it's also interesting because noli me tangere, touch me not, is perhaps a biblical illusion. That's what uh, Christ says when the women come to his tomb and uh, Mary Magdalene, he says, touch me not, I have not ascended to my father. That gives a very odd resonance to it. And also, there were no um, there were no apostrophes in Renaissance punctuation. So for Caesar's I am could be I belong to Caesar or I am fit for Caesar's for somebody who is who is that royal. That sounds like something Cleopatra would say. For Caesar's I am, not for commoners. Um, now again, e- either way, the, the ambivalence of that works either way. He's excluded. He can't have her. She's for Caesar's. Uh, and I'm wild for to hold, though I seem tame. He, he you know, I, she can't get hold of her. In a net, he seeks to catch the wind. Now that's a very loose translation. Uh, Wyatt has really kind of made it his own. Uh, and you can see some other uh, things he does with the with the sonnet and with the sonnet form. Um, look at farewell love. Uh, and notice that there's a good uh, another good example of the the turn or the volta in line nine. Therefore, farewell. Uh, you can tell that the uh, a Petrarchan sonnet is has a a turn because it usually begins that ninth line with uh, some kind of, of conjunction. Therefore, but yet uh, something that signals that we're 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 making a turn in the argument. Uh, for instance, in Diverse Doth Use, uh, line nine starts with but. Uh, look at this one. Diverse Doth Use, that's diverse people are, are, are uh, uh, used to, as I have heard and know, 
When that to change, their ladies do begin to mourn and wail and never for to lend, hoping thereby to, uh, to peace their painful woe. And some there be that when it chances so, that, that women change and hate where love hath been, they call them false and think with words to win the heart of them which otherwhere doth grow. But as for me, though that by chance indeed change has out, hath outworn the favor that I had, I will not wail, lament, nor yet be sad, nor call her false that falsely did me feed, but let it pass, and think it is of kind that often change doth please a woman's mind. Now this is not a, an adaptation of a, of a Petrarchan sonnet, but it's very it's uh, it is Petrarchan in this kind of unattainable love, and it's got that Petrarchan sonnet structure. And so it talks about here's what most people do when they're when the, the lady they love abandons them. They they mourn and wail. Uh, they call the women false. They try to persuade her. He says, "Oh, but me, I'm I'm different. I let it pass." Uh, though, of course, the other sonnets that he's written suggest that he's not all that different. Uh, but again, the the sonnet is not meant to uh, be a story or a coherent story. It's supposed to capture an emotional moment uh, in the poet's life. Let's look at uh, one of Wyatt's uh, non-sonnets. Uh, this is the poem "They Flee from Me." Uh, and you'll see there are two versions of this in your textbook. The first one is from the Edgerton Manuscript. This was actually written in Wyatt's own hand, his, his handwriting on the page. Uh, so this is his version of the poem. And the second version they have, with that long, ungangly title, um, is from uh, Tuttle's Miscellany. This was a, a it was published fifteen years after uh, Wyatt had died, and it's a, a group of poems uh, by either Wyatt and Surrey and other poems in there as well. Uh, but uh, Tottle was very fastidious about having very strict regular meter, so he went in and, and changed the poem so that it would uh, it would scan perfectly. There wouldn't be any variations in the meter. And as we'll see, in doing that, he often kind of, of uh, misses the point of what's going on in the poem. But let's look first at the at, at uh, Wyatt's version of this. They flee from me that sometime did me seek, with naked foot, stalking in my chamber. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek, that now are wild, and do not remember that sometime they have put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand, and now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. So, from the beginning, we're setting up a difference between the past and the present. They flee from me that sometime did me seek. You know, the and he's, he's obviously talking about the women in his life, but he's using the, these metaphors uh, of you know, stalking. Uh, it's almost like, you know, they uh, put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand, like they're wild animals that he's, he's trying to tame. And says, I used to have the touch, and they would come right and eat right out of my hand, and now they, they won't come anywhere near me. They're just running around and uh, having fun out in the forest. Um, the second stanza. Thanked be fortune, it hath been otherwise, twenty times better, but once in special, in thin array, 
after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she me caught in her arms long and small, therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this? So now he's remembering back before they they fled from him, and particularly this one time, this encounter with this woman that's not named, of course. Um, Then the final stanza. It was no dream. I lay broad waking. But all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking. And I have leave to go of her goodness, and she also to use newfangledness. But since that I so kindly am served, I fain would know what she hath deserved. So he's saying that, you know, the, the, this happened, but now she's abandoned him. She's uh, uh, this fashion of forsaking. She's forsaken him. Um, so let's, let's look at the some of the changes that Toddle has made in this poem. Um, some of them, like... Uh, Look, look at the second line. With naked foot, stalking in my chamber. Now we've got two stresses in a row there. With naked foot, stalking in my chamber. Now I think what that does is it forces you to kind of give an extra pause between foot and stalking. With naked foot, stalking in my chamber. Uh, Tuttle doesn't fix that. He just adds within afterwards to try to make the number of of, of beats in the line be right. Uh, or in the next one, it says, I have seen them, gentle, tame, and meek. Uh, that he's, he, th- That's the variation we saw. We've got an initially stressed sil- syllable. I have seen them, gentle, tame, and meek. But uh, Tala wants to you know, smooth that out. Once have I seen them, gentle, tame, and meek. It's a very regular line, but it loses the rhetorical emphasis on I. Um, so, uh, again and again, he, he, you know, he kind of makes it smoother meter, but he loses some of the subtlety uh, of, of the of the language, and particularly in that final stanza. You know, it starts, it was no dream. I lay broad waking. Uh, There's a kind of a choppy rhythm there, right? Uh, Tuttle smooths that out. It was no dream for I lay broad awaking. Okay, yes, that's much more regular meter. But having that kind of of choppy rhythm in the middle of the line really fits what he's saying. It was no dream. I lay broad waking. He's, he's almost trying to convince himself that this happened. Um, and this next one, he, he just doesn't understand how... The next line, he just doesn't understand what Chaucer, what Chaucer what, why it wrote. Um, but all is turned, Thoreau, my gentleness. And he changes, Thoreau was a, uh, even then a kind of an archaic word, so he uses through, but then he needs an extra syllable, so he says, but all is turned now through my gentleness. Okay, well, you haven't really improved anything. You've just changed it. But this next line, he makes a really big change into a strange fashion of forsaking. Okay, you're missing a syllable there, and Toddle supplies it into a bitter 
fashion of forsaking. Well, now wait. Strange and bitter are not synonyms. Strange means puzzling. He doesn't understand it. Bitter is is bitter. It, it, it's it's malicious. Uh, that changes the tone uh, of the of the end of the poem very greatly. Uh, it's no longer this. Uh, in in Wyatt's version, he's kind of bewildered and not understand what happened. You know, we 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 were so good together, and now you're you're gone. Uh, but in in Tottle, he gives her a motive. It's bitter. She's bitter about something. Um, and look at the last two lines of the poem. And again, here I think that Tottle just doesn't understand how the uh, uh, why it read the syllables. But since that I so kindly am served, he takes the word kindly and and and, and makes it a three-syllable word to give it extra emphasis. And so, kindly is, is a nicely ambiguous word. There, uh, of course, in it can mean in kind in the same way. I've been served in the same way that maybe I served other women. But kind also meant to be nice, uh, which is very ironic here because the lady's not being nice at all. Uh, Toddle makes it very regular rhythm and very unambiguous. But since that I unkindly so am served, well, kindly and unkindly are quite literally opposites. I mean, he's completely misread. And then he completely changes the last line. Again, for Wyatt, it's a very kind of subtle questioning. I fain, I would like to know what she hath deserved. You know, if this is what I got from how I what, what, what is she going to, to get from this? And again, Toddle makes it much more uh, explicit. You know, how like you this? What has she now deserved? You know, like, huh. You know, he, he has the echo of how like you this, which is what uh, the, the lady said in the second stanza, dear heart, how like you this. Um, I think, by the way, of the, uh, another kind of beautiful wordplay with dear heart. Uh, D e e r for you know a deer a heart h a r t was a, was a male deer um, deer heart in a, in a poem that has been talking about the the beloved as a wild animal like a wild deer um, that, that's something that Toddle doesn't mess up in his his version. One reason I wanted to focus on this. Uh, uh, Revision that Toddle makes is to show you just how delicate and subtle the language of a great poem can be. Uh, I mean, the changes that Toddle makes are, are, are not enormous. It's basically the same poem, but he's really shifted in a way that uh, that alters it, and I think simplifies it and irons out some of the 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 uh, strangeness of the poem. Again, it's it's wonderful. He turns the word strange to the word bitter, which sums up, you know, in in one word, uh, how he's you know, kind of imposed an interpretation on the poem by, uh, by trying to make it fit his idea. Um, all right, let's uh, let's turn now to Surrey. Now, I think Surrey is a. Uh, much less gifted poet than Wyatt. He, he's more conventional, and, and you know he's important 
mainly for the the kind of formal innovations he made of inventing the English sonnet and such. But let's look at one of his uh, uh, translations of Petrarch, the Sutta Season, Sutta, Sweet. Uh, yeah, we, we know that word from Chaucer, right? When, when the April with his shower, Sutta. All right, this is based on Petrarch's Rima 310, Zephyrus returns and leads back the fine weather and the flowers and the grass, his sweet family and chattering Procne and weeping Philomena and spring all white and vermilion. The meadows laugh and the sky becomes clear again. Jupiter is gladdened, looking at his daughter. The air and the waters and the earth are full of love. Every animal takes counsel again to love. But to me, alas, come back heavier sighs, which she draws from my deepest heart, she who carried off to heaven the keys of it, and the singing of the little birds, and the flowering of meadows, and the virtues, gentle gestures in beautiful ladies, or a wilderness and cruel savage beasts. Now, notice that this, you can see even in translation, that this has got that um, that turn at the end of the octave, the but, to me, he starts off, Petrarch starts off talking about how wonderful spring is, but then to him it it just makes life miserable because it reminds him of the love who's who's gone. Now here's a uh, uh, Surrey's take on this: the Suda season that bud and bloom brings forth, with green hath clad the hill and eke the vale. The nightingale with feathers new she sings, the turtle to her make hath told her tale. Summer is come, for every spray now springs. The heart hath hung his old head on the pale, the buck in break his winter coat he flings. The fishes flout with new repaired scale, the adder all her slough away she slings. The swift swallow pursueth the flies small, the busy bee her honey now she mings. Winter is worn that was the flower's bale, and thus I see among these pleasant things each care decays, and yet my sorrow springs. And I notice that uh, for Surrey, the, the turn comes in the second half of the final line, and yet... Right, uh, so he kind of gets carried away with, uh, and again cataloging uh, the, all of the things, the different, uh, you know, the heart, the buck, the fishes, the adder, the swift swallow, the busy bee, uh, and, and doesn't get to the second half of the, the, the. It's almost like he kind of ran out and had to squeeze the last part in there at the at the end. Um, again, it's 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 less. Uh, uh, Formally interesting than uh, Petrarch's original, uh, but it, you know it's it's well written. It's a good sonnet. Um, I asked you also to look at uh, a, a passage that Surrey wrote from his translation of the Aeneid, uh, Virgil's Aeneid. This is significant because this is where one of the most important verse forms in English was first written down, and that is blank verse. Now, blank verse is unrhymed iambic pentameter. So it's an iambic pentameter, just like a sonnet, but there's no rhyme. 
And this will be uh, an enormously important verse form because it's going to be used in Elizabethan drama. Uh, Shakespeare and Marlowe and all of their contemporaries will use blank verse, uh, and it will be used later. You know, Wordsworth will write his great epic poem, The Prelude, in blank verse. Um, but here we get uh, the first example of it. In fact, the the editor called it a strange meter when it was published. Um, look at the beginning here, unhappy Dido burns, and in her rage, throughout the town she wandereth up and down. Like to the stricken hind, with shaft in Crete, throughout the woods, which chasing with his darts, aloof, the shepherd smiteth at unawares, and leaves unwist in her the thrilling head, that through the, go- the groves and lands glides in her flight, and whose side amid whose side the mortal arrow sticks. Now, that's an example of what's called an epic simile. Uh, A a regular simile is just using like or as, you know, my love is like a rose, uh, Juliet is like the sun, something like that. But an epic simile uh, tells a little story. So Dido being struck by the love's dart is like, and then it tells this whole story. There's this deer, and the the uh, the shepherd didn't even know that his arrow had pierced her, but it, it did, and she goes off and is is mortally wounded. Uh, well, that tells us that uh, that the object of her love, Aeneas, doesn't know that she is smitten with him. Uh, so, uh, you know, epic simile. We'll see some epic similes in some of the epics we read later on. But I just wanted to, uh, you know, let you read that and see the, uh, the kind of beginnings of blank verse in the English tradition. Uh, well, I, I mean, I could go on and on about these poems, but uh, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, for next time, you need to read the uh, the first section that we're going to be covering of. Sidney's Astrophil and Stella. This was his sonnet sequence. Uh, so read up through sonnet 56. Now, it's, it's not all 56 sonnets. It's a selection. It's about 20, 25 of those sonnets. Uh, but look at those. Look at how uh, Sidney is using the sonnet form. Um, one thing to think about as you're, as you're looking at these, these sonnets and at, at lyric poems generally, try to think, what is the kind of emotional situation that has inspired the poem. Uh, a poem kind of happens when there's been some break in the equilibrium. Something has happened. And what has happened in these uh, in, in his life, in his relationship, that has inspired him to write a poem at this moment? And then think about what poetic devices does he use to express that? What images, what metaphors, uh, what kind of organization within the sonnet, what rhetorical tricks, uh, all of those things. We'll be looking at how uh, uh, how Sidney embodies those emotional moments in the, in the poetry, in the sonnets for next time. Um, my email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. You can uh, send questions if you have them. Uh, thank you for your attention. I will speak to you next time.